0: Postscript Media, podcast for a changing planet. The climate crisis is literally the world's biggest existential problem, but we cannot begin to solve it if we don't know how to talk about it. On Crooked Media's newest podcast, Hot Take, real-life friends and climate essayists Mary Anais Heglar and Amy Westerfeld provide a holistic, irreverent, and honest look at the climate crisis and all the ways media and society are talking and sadly, not talking about it. Each week, they'll bring you the latest climate news with journalists and storytellers who are trying to make sense of this complex issue. With fresh humanity and humor, their conversations move swiftly from cackling about the bad week an oil company had to speaking seriously and passionately about the unequal distribution of climate impacts to even their own experiences of climate grief. And then they'll wash it down with a round of dad jokes. I really feel like there's so many similarities between what we're doing and what they're doing. Listen to new episodes of Hot Take every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. Hot Take, Hot Buttons—they're like our sisters over there. Are we going to see Thrillas? Thrill- Are we going to see <laughs> Thrilla? i just find company name and your own name, Shilla. I'm going call- <laughs> to. Oh my gosh, Christina! That's such a I good idea. <laughs> Can I call you Thrilla now? <laughs> is Hot Buttons, a show about the future of fashion and culture on a changing planet. I'm Christina Binkley. I'm a contributing writer at Vogue Business and The Wall Street Journal. This week, plastic fashion. Your Instagram and TikTok feeds are probably littered with feel-good ads for clothes and shoes that are made from recycled bottles, but they aren't the solution you think they are. Then it's a new world for brands doing business with China. America's crackdown on forced labor is twisting supply chains, and it's more than just awkward for brands that have become accustomed to the flow of goods that may be coming from Uyghur prisoners and other virtual slaves. We're going to finish with a reality TV breakup with fast fashion. Can Love Island push pre-loved clothing into the zeitgeist? I'll bet Sheila hopes so. I'm joined by my regular co-hosts, Shilla Kim Parker and Rachel Kibbe. Hi, ladies. Hi hey there. is CEO and co-founder of Thrilling, a marketplace for vintage powered by mom and pop shops. And Rachel is the founder of Circular Services Group, an advisory firm focused on circularity in fashion. As a journalist, I'm trained to keep my opinions to myself, but this reversal is such a turning point that I feel we all must address it, even in a fashion podcast. The US Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade this week. Ugh. Yeah, I think that's exactly how I feel about it. It's just like soft silence and a groan. Yeah. This, you know, fashion is a relatively liberal industry and it's a major employer of women and LGBTQ people. So it's it's to be expected that people in the fashion business responded with horror pretty, pretty widely. But it actually remains to be seen if brands do much other than posting on Instagram. I'm very curious to see uh, any kind of action taken politically, um, how brands adjust their human resources and their um, their offerings to help women who are uh, living in parts of the country that suddenly can't get access to various types of abortion and, um, and other reproductive care. I don't know. How are you guys feeling? Am I alone in this? Uh, I don't even know where to start. I mean, oh
1: God, what's the question? I mean... <laughs> It's how I I think every morning. I think that's the question. Yeah. Right. And I'm also like, I just, like, I can't even read about what companies are doing. Like, thank you, but I don't want your handouts for the insufficient um, protection of human rights in this country on so many levels that's been happening for so long and continues to happen. Like, I I don't, it's really sad when companies have to take more power than they really deserve by giving us the things that we're owed. Right. It's 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 a it's a
2: bandaid over the actual issue. It's it's bleak, and obviously we knew this was coming, um, but it was still a gut punch. And as we know, this is not actually an end to abortions; it's an end to safe abortions, and that um, many women and girls will die because of this, and that or have their lives extraordinarily degraded. And most frightening of all, the Supreme Court is not done. Many of our civil liberties are under attack, and I think. The biggest problem right now for the Democrats is that, and you saw kind of fundraising emails go out immediately afterwards asking for mm-hmm. $10 and $15. Right. Right is that they cannot tell us to vote blue no matter who. Like, that's that strategy is going to fall flat, um, and it's tone-deaf. Um, you know, right now, Democrats control both chambers and the presidency. Poll after poll has shown that the majority of Americans support access to abortion. Right. Um, and somehow, in this supposed democracy, we still have minority rule. And so I think the actual thing that, you know, messaging-wise, that um, companies, but honestly, the, the you know our political system and the Democrats have to grapple with is the great, what I think of is is as the great resignation, not people quitting their jobs, but people actually getting resigned out of feeling like anything that they do matters, um, and yeah. that's the most lethal recipe for our country because that's how you get Donald Trump back in office. That's how we're going to take major losses in, in Congress. Um, and so beyond the fact that this is a crisis for democracy and for women and for the vulnerable, this is also a crisis of leadership, of, of mm-hmm. inspiration and communication. Yeah. And how are we going to get people – because we, we've been doing the work. So how are we going to get people to continue doing the work to show up and to um, to exercise that muscle called
0: hope? <sighs> oh, okay, shake it off. Um, we had to address that. Bleak times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Shella, you have a really great voice for this. I hope you're out there talking about it. Like what you moved me just now, like I, you gave me a glimmer of hope. Okay, well, we have a, another really <laughs> optimistic, happy topic here. Let's, our first topic is recycled plastic. And I, I have, that's not even funny. I have to say that um, until Rachel sent me straight recently... I always felt really good about buying clothes and even other objects that were said they were made from recycled plastic. I, somehow I thought there was virtue to it. Um, <laughs> she burst <apparently>, your bubble? <laughs> she's burst, burst, <laughs> burst one of my bubbles. Thanks, Gosh. Rachel. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so it turns out that using products labeled recycled is not as virtuous as we as, as we think. Um, brands love it. Plastic bottles are being turned, they have been for a long time, been being turned into fleece. Single-use plastic recycled is going into shorts and swimsuits. Old fishing nets are being harvested and refashioned into eco-nylon. It does sound like eco-nylon. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. <that's-> um, <laughs> Got a ring it's, to it. It's Some a part.
2: Excellent of <laughs> marketing. Spin. The, the marketing department earned their money Econ- that earned their <laughs> salaries <laughs> that day.
1: We're
0: gonna have eco petroleum.
1: Yeah, eco saran wrap. Yeah. Oh god. <laughs> Sometimes I think they're just like.
2: Huh, I don't know. Just throw it out there and see if, they, see if they'll see if believe it. it sticks <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, they <laughs> do.
0: It sounds good. So. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is a part of the sustainability plans of brands from the Gap to Patagonia. Prada's doing it. Um, it. It's actually helping Prada get better interest rates on its loans because of a deal that Prada made uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, it just feels right. You help clean up the ocean or you keep plastic out of landfills with every purchase, right? We all know plastic waste is a problem. And recycling it into sustainable textiles feels like you're making a difference, right, Rachel? But plastic (laughs) is still plastic. It's made from oil. The plastics industry has lied for decades about its ability to be recycled. I read, where was it? Like 10% of the plastic we throw away actually Mm -hmm. gets recycled. I've been, like, literally, I've been, like, washing takeout containers lately to make them really clean. Because I'm thinking maybe that'll improve their chances of being recycled. Oh, but that's wish cycling. Um, But it turns out most of it goes... (laughs) That's wish cycling, <laughs> yeah, likely, no. likely okay. yeah. I, that's a that's a word wish cycling, okay, yeah, it turns out, so apparently it all mostly goes into landfills or the ocean, despite all of our efforts. um Rachel, you've been following this for years. Can you just sort of tell us why this isn't working, why recycled plastic is not the solution for plastic
1: well i I think that It's a complicated issue, so I'll try to approach it uh, from the simplest way possible, and that's that once a plastic goes into a textile right now, um, whether it's virgin plastic or recycled plastic from bottles, it's Mm -hmm. not—we don't have the infrastructure or the sorting capabilities or any of really the technology at scale to turn that back into a new textile— even though we're only recycling about 10% of our plastics, we do have the recycling infrastructure at a much greater scale to recycle bottles back into bottles. So if you're buying a T-shirt that's mixed, it's 100% plastic bottles or ocean waste or mixed poly cotton blend with recycled PET, while the carbon impact of using that recycled plastic is less, then using virgin plastic, it can't be recycled again when it could have been if it, ma- if it stayed a bottle. And um, this has caused um, larger sort of market problems in that the textile industry has been siphoning off recyclable plastics from the bottle industry and making recycled plastics for bottles, the prices of that commodity go up which increases the need <laughs> for virgin plastics for the bottle industry. So that's like that's one issue, but then there's the other issue of I think the the campaigning around it sort of this is the greenwashing a bit where people think oh ocean plastics or you know recycled bottles great. But most ocean plastics are at the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> oh, so like we're not yeah, so we can't get them. Yeah, we, they're frozen at the bottom of the ocean or I've even heard that um, there are some sites that are pushing plastics into the ocean to reclaim them <laughs> and then call them ocean plastics. Oh, my God. Uh, oh, my yeah. God. That, <laughs> that is yeah. so human nature. Sure, been,
2: it's very human <laughs> depressing. nature. Depressing. Oh, my. It's very my. depressing.
1: Okay. It's very depressing. And then you have the others. There's, It gets even more complicated where, like, so even if you could recycle, like, a jacket that has multiple layers, the top layer, uh, is made out of recycled bottles, let's say, and maybe the inner layer is made out of another material, and then you have a zipper and you have the buttons. The cost of disassembling all that, and we don't have like robotic sorting yet at scale that would be able to recognize it, disassemble it. Generally, a machine that scans that type of thing, even though it's not being used at scale yet, only reads the first layer of that jacket. So there's a lot of complications. Bottles are easier. They're generally one material or a few, not seven, like a jacket. And so clothes are just very hard to recycle. So we're going to have challenges there. But I do have to say there's certain, like, use cases that I do think are okay. Like what? Oh, yeah? Like, I think that for now the public expects footwear to be very durable, and Mm. performance-oriented, especially. And getting away from plastics is going to be very hard, and I do think there is a use case there for footwear. And and full disclosure, I've been Mm. doing a project for Rothy's, um, a footwear company, Um, and they have always made their shoes from recycled plastics, and they've found a way to recycle that plastic back into new plastic for the uppers. And so we've been working on the harder to recycle parts of the shoe, like the TPU and the vulcanized TPU? rubber. TPU is on the sole. It's a it's a
0: plastic. That's the material sole. the sole is made? Uh-huh. Yep. Well, that's kind of nice to hear because, I mean, I was listening to you talk earlier. I was thinking, well, maybe we should just stop recycling plastics right. into clothing. We should just recycle plastic bottles back into more plastic bottles so they're right. not using virgil- virgin materials. But there is a use case.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: But it takes
1: coordinated effort, and it takes like Rothy's has already started to collect their shoes back and create those. It's like that infrastructure and supply chain that you have to start to put together too, in concert with other brands. But I do think that um, footwear is a really challenging opportunity. Like I, I don't want my running sneakers to fall apart or give me shin splints.
0: Right, right,
2: right. So I think something that's really interesting to highlight here is just how all of this got started. Um, perfectly highlighted in an NPR piece by Laura Sullivan. Um, she quotes Larry Thomas, the former president of the Society of the Plastics Industry.
1: Hmm. It <laughs> <laughs> to to sounds like a... It happens in a tutor tutor home.
2: Yes, exactly. Um, who worked side by side with these top oil and plastics executives for years and of his work in the 80s he said the feeling was the plastics industry was under fire. We got to do what it takes to take the heat off because we want to continue to make plastic products. And I think that's the kind of sentence that's like just the saying the quiet part out loud and what we always fear and yeah. and kind of that pit in our stomach when we hear about some of these sustainability initiatives coming out of apparel companies, which is are you, are you just trying to hypnotize us um, into feeling feeling satiated and, and more peaceful while it's just business as usual and uh, and the planet and human rights continue to deteriorate? Um, and here, to me, is the best magic trick of all, is not yeah. only do these companies want to continue making plastic in greater volumes, that's actually the end goal. They also want to convince us that it's our fault. Right. Um, and, and I'm sorry yeah. to do this, but I have to read this passage from this 2018 Guardian piece by Stephen Barani. He wrote... Yeah. <laughs> Companies involved in plastics and other disposable packaging funded nonprofit groups that highlighted the consumer's responsibility for rubbish. One of these groups, Keep America Beautiful, founded in 1953 and funded by companies including Coca-Cola, Pepsi, Dow Chemical, and Mobile, ran hundreds of advertisements along these lines, people start pollution, people can stop it, stated their 1971 Earth Day campaign. Framing litter as a personal failing was remarkably successful. In 1988, the year global plastic production pulled even with steel, Margaret Thatcher picking up litter for a photo op said, This is not the fault of the government. It is the fault of the people who knowingly and thoughtlessly throw it down. I mean, this is oh a God. Dr. Evil from Austin Powers type of maneuver that has been unbelievably successful for decades and still is.
0: And you know what? I mean, honestly, as you're saying this, my childhood is flashing. I mean, my whole childhood was littered with littered, huh? Um, those <laughs> ads for Keep America Beautiful. Absolutely. And it was all about Pick up your litter and that'll solve the problem. We weren't thinking about landfills yet or all these other issues, you know, the oceans. But I feel like it shaped my whole generation's attitude toward not regulating it. We could solve the problem ourselves as opposed to asking our governments to say, no, stop producing this That's the
1: hypnosis. Yes.
0: And when you read that, you can
1: kind of see it happening in fashion.
0: Yes, exactly. Yeah, of that's the scary part. And writer. people ha- thinking they're doing well. I mean, I keep I brought this up before, but I ha- had an um an interview with John Vervedos a few weeks a couple months ago now and he was so proud he's got a new brand out. He was so proud of these like a lot of his clothes which are quite good, by the way, are made with blends of wool and cotton with um, with petroleum products, you know, with polyesters, mm-hmm. and he was so proud. He was like, oh, "These are recycled polyesters. I'm doing good." And mm. of course, I was not aware. I, Rachel had not yet educated me. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> then I was like, "Oh, wonderful!" Pre-Rachel,
1: disappointed everyone. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, you know what? You know, you educated us. And by the way, I am now definitely watching out for that kind of thing. Like you, you've actually impacted my consumerism because I'm sure not buying clothes with blended polyester in them. Yeah,
1: I think it's it's a tough thing because it's everybody wants to do better, but doing better really requires consuming less and producing less. When you come down to the fundamentals, it's a really easy sort of math equation in a lot of ways. And then everything else you have to be very skeptical of and um, there are a lot of brands that are well-meaning, and it's very hard, especially in the case of footwear or performance wear, to get away from from plastics. And so these companies are really relying on recycled plastic bottles. And then, I mean, I think for any customer who uh, is sort of saying, well, what do I buy recycled clothing? Do I rec- buy a shirt or a mm-hmm. jacket that's made out of recycled right. bottles or shoes? I would just say… If you really have an interest, look and see if the company, like I mentioned in Rothy's case, is trying to develop a, a supply chain in which they're going to recycle these these items again. Are they building collection? Okay. Are they building partnerships mm-hmm. to recycle? Are they partnering with other service providers to create a pipeline to recycle these things? Because um, that's extended producer responsibility where they're actually trying to take ownership. But if they're just selling you something made out of recycled materials, is it right. not better? I, I mean And I also
2: just, at what scale, right, Rachel? I saw one of your tweets this week, and it's about um, at what scale are they reusing these products and mm-hmm. um, and in proportion to the scale of their, um, their entire production line? Oh, yeah, there's so
1: many stories out there. Like, we've made huge brands. We've made a few upcycled pieces, literally like a dozen. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and it's it
2: press know. release, and it's like,
0: <laughs> why like it's a
2: twelve hundred percent increase from last
1: year?
0: <laughs> you know, well, that's the same thing. I mean, the whole fashion industry works that way. Look at the look at the runways. We're about to go into Haute Couture. We're going to see all these beautiful clothes on the runway in Paris. I mean, they're going to be extraordinary clothes. Um, but you know, maybe a dozen of you know, if a, if a dozen of ten percent of those looks that you see on the runway get made, that'll be a miracle. I mean, it's mm. not. Haute Couture is a little different because it's a whole different yeah. consumer. But the same things are true. You know, on the regular runways, we see these big collections. The, the average is 20% of those clothes actually see a real life. Well, thank God. The, in- right. the whole fashion industry. Well, okay, <laughs> you can say that. But the industry is sort of, we're, it's just built on sort of fantasies and putting fantasies in front of people and then giving them something else this is not a fantasy. We've, we're we going to talk about human rights in China. And we have an, a new American law. It's reshuffling global trade, not just for the fashion industry. I mean, it's redoing supply chains for for tomato paste. Um, but it's forcing textile and apparel companies to find new sources for billions of dollars of goods that they've been making in a region of China called Xinjiang, where it's, ex- I think it's been pretty well documented. The The Chinese government is denying it. But um, roughly a million ethnic minorities, largely Uyghurs, have been basically kidnapped and and put into forced labor camps where they are worked long hours in huge factories manufacturing everything from solar panels to cotton T-shirts. So in the U.S. last week, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act became law. This is a really good thing, in my opinion— The law stops all U.S. imports of products that come from that region, the Xinjiang region of China. But then implementing that law is going to be a challenge because it turns out that, and I guess no surprise, when you have really, really inexpensive forced labor in huge quantities, you start supplying the whole world with things that the world gets um, addicted to and gets addicted to those prices. So we, you know, we are upsetting that supply chain in a lot of industries. It turns out Xinjiang accounts for a fifth of the world's cotton. Um, I think it also said it was like a quarter of the world's tomato paste, 10% of rayon. But it is an impact on the fashion industry. It's putting fashion brands in an uncomfortable spot, and they, they need... They either need Chinese labor materials and customers um, or they need to find replacements for it someplace. Um, H&M found this out the hard way when it criticized China's treatment of the Uyghurs. The Chinese government... Um, you know, I think they literally tried to wipe it off the maps. They removed H&M locations from maps. They took the App Store off of domestic phones, and H&M responded by backtracking. So um, we'll, we'll, it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out and what the Chinese government's response to it is. Um, but I'm curious about what you guys think. I, I You know, Rachel, sh- shall I, wh- whichever one, leap in here. What's your take on this? And by the way, you guys have businesses. Does this impact your businesses in any way? For me, it doesn't.
2: You know, I, our, our businesses are all um, U.S.-based mom-and-pop shops, um, and they're kind of buying and selling within the States for the most part. Uh, you know, my, my reaction to it, I, I have two thoughts on it. I, I know Rachel has a wealth of, of knowledge here. The first reaction is, um, you know, I'm glad for anything that continues to shine a light on this crisis in China and that applies pressure on China. And I, I think it's it seems like a um, a good first step. There's lots of challenges with enforcement, I think, and I have lots of questions about companies that are going to outsource to other countries. What what are those supply chains look like, and is yeah. there, is are there going to be uh, a flashlight shown on those on right. those processes? And <laughs> right, some right. companies are going to continue to operate there. I think enforcement is really challenging. I know Rachel will talk about kind of the difficulty of mapping the supply chain. And then you know another concern I have is that it's going to take several years to build out a comprehensive enforcement system. What happens in a change of administration and a change of priorities? Right. Um, and then my, and then my second point, my second thought on it is also there are so many issues with forced labor across the entire industry and so many other countries. So this feels like again great. I'm 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 glad for it. I'm glad
1: for this conversation. Um, but it feels like the first step of many steps that are necessary. I guess I just say that. It's the fashion industry seems to be a little ahead in this issue. Um, There's been sort of a light. What? 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 Yeah, because they. (laughs) Well, because the first uh, commodities to kind of get nailed out of that region were cotton and I believe tomato paste. So since about I think 2021, maybe even 2020, there has been the fashion industry has been scrambling to find alternate sources of cotton and then just. Sort of, it seems like last week, the U.S. government said, by the way, you know, one in 10 out of 10 million businesses is going to be affected by this. And here's a list of every industry that we're coming for.
0: And um, so— That's interesting, actually, because that was actually the surprise to me. I'd been hearing about—I guess I just thought it was a massive numbers of apparel factories in Xinjiang. And now we understand that it's virtually every industry that's manufacturing stuff— has been yeah. manufacturing it there, including solar panels. I mean, Chinese solar panels are everywhere in the u s and priced so far below. I know this because I have two, both my houses are so, solar, so
1: oh, I mean, I was just I was astounded at the list global walnuts, peppers ran, like you said <laughs> beryllium. but you know the interesting thing is I sort of watched, especially last year I would talk to people internally at some of these companies and they were like, oh no, we're like. We have product shortages because we have to find new suppliers of cotton, and it was a real sort mm. of strain. And now we're watching other industries sort of catch up. Um, and then there was there's something called Source Map, which I've heard about um, the fashion use the industry using quite a bit. It's a supply chain. Is that an app? It's it's I, it might be a web based app, but it's a it's a technology that's a supply chain transparency company. And they are developing forced labor compliance um, on their platform to help businesses um, meet what they call evolving human rights standards.
0: It it, oh, so it was like a brand could subscribe to this somehow and not have to map their whole supply chain themselves. Yeah. It helps them with chain of custody huh. through
1: verification to Ooh. from from uh, within their supply chains down to raw materials, including forced labor risk heat maps, which is interesting. And so they can verify every container that enters U.S. ports. They can even look for waste, fraud, abuse. And they claim that their largest customers have been fashion companies so far. Now all other industries are piling on. And I think that this you know, we saw with the New York Fashion Act, uh, there's been just a lot of pressure on the fashion industry, whether we pass policy or not, to become more transparent. And it's funny, I feel that yeah. um, we always assumed we were behind, but in a lot of ways, I think we've started to move ahead, or at least there's been more visibility onto our issues. So I think maybe internally, the fashion industry in some ways is, is a little bit ahead.
0: Uh, of, it at least makes thinking. sense. I mean, When you think about it, the fashion industry, it's been 20 years since Nike and Adidas and and a number of big manufacturers got in trouble for their factories in Mexico and in Asia. People started really talking about what were the working conditions, what were the contract conditions of the employees in those things. And, you know, it impacted their stock prices. They tried to get better. It sort of started a long conversation that we've been having for two decades now about factory worker conditions. It's interesting. And we don't really, I I don't think I've ever seen a uh, story about the conditions in wind turbine factories or tomato paste factories. That kind of attention does seem to come to apparel. Also,
1: Sheehan might have a tax loophole here. Of course. (laughs)
0: Because they're shit. We, we are never going up. to have an episode where we don't talk about Shein.
1: <laughs> I,
0: because I, I think That's the real business that they're in. Tax.
2: They should set up like an H and R block. They would be the best for like, other companies.
0: <laughs> they're in the wrong business. They, they <laughs> just, they are they're are so good at it, honestly. <laughs> You've got to give credit oh, where God. credit's due. Okay, clearly we're now talking about Shein and H and R Block, so it's time for our next, (laughs) our next topic, um, which I have to say I am absolutely the wrong person (laughs) to be discussing Love Island. Um, because I've never seen it, and I'm I am a little bit embarrassed to admit that um, I'm just not I'm not a reality TV person, and <laughs> that's I'm, a point of pride. Seriously, <laughs> I don't know, I don't know. So I mean, it does leave me a little out. clearly? It leaves me out of touch. But I I couldn't I couldn't miss the headlines anyway. The other day, I guess the question is really so. so Love Island used to have a deal with Boohoo owned I saw it first website, so they dressed all the characters in this in this show in fast fashion. and um, and it was very profitable for I saw it first. They saw a 67% increase in sales, a 254 percent increase in Instagram followers as a result of these contestants wearing its products. Um, now eBay, this is so smart of them, by the way. I'd, I would love to know more about how this deal, like who who called who um, to get this thing going. But now eBay is going to be dressing the contestants in most areas. I guess there's some exceptions for swimwear and shoes and accessories. When, I, By the way, I understand this people don't want to wear used swimwear, but the shoes and accessories, the cynical person in me says, oh, that's where the high profit margins are and a lot of advertising and they don't want to give that to eBay. They want to give that to the brands who are going to pay for it. So that's my guess. Mm-hmm. Cynical, maybe. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, eBay is dressing these um, these contestants and the question is, uh, you know, can consumer feelings about secondhand clothes be influenced by reality TV? Are we going to see Shilla's clients and consumers selling more because of this? I'm just curious to see because it certainly was profitable for um, Boohoo and I saw it first. Um, Let's talk about this a little bit. I I, I, Literally, guys, I have to throw this over to you because like I said, I haven't seen Love Island and I don't really comprehend why it's having such a big impact on apparel sales. Tell me, what I'm missing. I'm so excited! I've I've been <laughs> grinning this entire time while you've been
2: talking. I'm like my heart is pounding. I'm so excited.
0: <laughs> oh my god! about Sheila
1: <laughs> is grinning ear business? to ear, ear to ear. <laughs> no. Oh. Oh. Huh? For
2: just for just to talk about reality TV and and Love Island and Davide and Davide. all the drama that's Davide. going on. You mean Davido, Davide, what is Davide? Dav- Davido. He's he's one of the he's one of the he's the Italian stallion. Um, he's he's <laughs> oh. one of the contestants on the show this season. <laughs> okay. Um, can we can we clear like forty five minutes? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You guys have time. Oh right? my god! <laughs> I could write I could write a, could write oh, a PhD. No. Should I
0: just watch the show and <laughs> I would read it.
2: I'm obsessed with Love Island. I'm I, I'm 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 ashamed, proud. I don't know uh, to admit that. You know, I think it's reality television at its finest. Um, they've really wow. perfected the art form. Give them Whoa. the Emmys, the Baftas, the Peabodys, whatever. Give them, give it, give it, give give it to all of them. Um, I I think this partnership is genius, and um, and as someone who runs a resale website, I'm I'm like overcome with jealousy. Um, I thought it was <laughs> I thought it was brilliant. Um, they're getting an enormous amount of visibility, um, enormous amount of noise. Um, my only question was after watching a few episodes. Um, first of all, eBay doesn't have sweatpants or like uh, you know shirts or oh, <laughs> like things that might really? be comfy for them to wear. I, the Cheryl Christina is is a lot of the contestants wearing very tight and revealing outfits and like st- six inch stilettos <laughs> and, oh. and most of the men um, topless. But um, I um I, <laughs> I, I think it's so I think popular. I think it's a brilliant partnership. It's getting a lot of um it's getting a lot of press and I think it brings the, the idea of resale to a different um, audience in a new way. Um, but, you know, honestly, I was a little disappointed watching a few episodes. I know Rachel, you, you've been watching as well. Cause I, I thought, huh, where is eBay in all of this? You know, they, they're kind of running the show as normal. It's not really part of the episodes or the storylines in any way. So basically what you have no. are folks who are still wearing some of the fast fashion brands. So I, I guess, presumably bought secondhand, but you don't know that as a viewer. And so I don't, I, and I'm curious, I, I'm, I'm not actually sure how I feel about it. Like, does it make a difference if in that context you're, you're still, um, it, it looks to a viewer who may not have known that you're promoting that brand and you don't know that it was actually bought from a secondhand site. And, and so therefore, does it really, does it really move the needle?
1: I had the same question. And so I thought there would be a bigger yeah. sort of eBay stamp yeah. on the show. Um, maybe in yeah. even just the, you know, opening credits or something like that. But I actually start, this is the first time I've watched Love Island. I love reality TV, uh, but have never watched Love Island. And so thank you for the opportunity, Shilla. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you
2: know, you mean, she did bring it up. The you first. bring the expertise about fashion and sustainability. I'm bringing trash television. So,
1: <laughs> you know, we all have our strengths. Well, you'll have, do you ever watch Vanderpunt Rules? because i feel like they deserve um, more credit than they're they're given. Yes, but yes yeah. you're you're right you're right but, you're right so i bet i mean i had to like so i started the with the first show of this latest season and i just i was confused because i was like is eBay coming later on i guess i'll have right. to keep watching yeah. to see if they're but no but there was a lot of like sequins and very tiny outfits that yes. seemed to mostly be right. fast fashion so Right,
2: yeah, so that's that's kind of that's that was my takeaway as well. I wish it was a bigger part of the conversation or the storylines, because um, otherwise, you know, I, I, I'm glad that they, you know, bought those items in a more sustainable way. But if it's not it, it to me ultimately at the end of the day, what comes across is that you're still promoting those same brands then,
1: right? And it's not gonna necessarily woo, I wonder if it'll woo eBay because is eBay gonna get that lift that boohoo got? Um, right. To its traffic. Right. I, I did like, I did notice that they're all sucking water bottles, like reusable water bottles. It's very oh, distracting.
2: <laughs> Rachel, Rachel, that's that's a huge, very important part of the show. Is it? Oh, okay. <laughs> not even, a, yes. <laughs> yes, it's, the water bottles is a whole thing. It's an it's part of every season and people just get obsessed with the water bottles.
1: <laughs> the water bottles have a personality
0: and a life of their own. So I just was like, what it's, are they? Why it's a they whole thing, Yeah. Well, I will say, I don't know if we said, we, we should make it clear, by the way, that this really is, we we talk about circularity every week, and this is actually additionally circular because after these clothes come from eBay, go to Love Island, get worn there, they're all going back to a secondhand seller called Go Thrift, where they're going to be resold again, or apparently they could also go to some charity shops that eBay works with. So um, they did a nice job. They, you know, they went full circular. Go Love Island. I think I might watch an episode. Just now you guys have made me curious. I'm really curious <laughs> what you think. Although- I, I refuse
2: to sully the sanctuary of Christina's mind. Yeah.
0: I'm, oh, I, please. Yeah. <laughs> my mind is no sanctuary. But you know, the problem for me is I'm a binger. Like I am the person oh, in my course. family who my my children are like, mom, go to bed. It's 2 a.m. You can watch another episode later. And I'm like, oh no, I got to see the next one. So um, I don't, I just like, I, sometimes I stay away from things that might be binge-worthy just because I don't want to ruin my week. Okay, um, it's time to wrap up the show with a look at what's p- pressing our buttons. Uh, who wants to go first? Who's got a button that got pushed this week? Good or bad? Well, for me, you know, obviously I
2: think the only thing that matters in this moment is the loss of reproductive rights and all the other rights we're about to lose. Um, mm-hmm. But on a lighter note, it makes me absolutely sick how much Greta Gerwig and Margot Robbie are making me want to see a movie about Barbie. Have you guys
0: seen all the <laughs> mm-hmm. pictures that have been coming out? Oh, mm-hmm. <laughs> Who has not seen Ryan Gosling as Ken? Yes.
1: Yes. <laughs> Rachel, you
0: haven't seen this? Oh, I saw him Okay. In. You're
2: right. I did see him. All right. no, 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 that's not that's not sufficient. I'm going to have to put these pictures into
0: our chat um, so that you can fully appreciate what we're talking about here. Yeah, you really, you do you pretty much do have to see them. Yeah. I want to see this movie. I mean, I, I, I also want to see Top Gun now, too, though, because... Oh, yeah, you know, absolutely. Like, it sounds amazing, but... We should note, by the way, that the Barbie movie's not coming out for a long time. They're just filming it. These were leaks of photos How that we should they? not have seen. That's so mean.
2: Whipping us into a frenzy and then making us wait a year.
0: Yeah. In fashion, that doesn't work very well. So I hope good luck to them with doing that in the movie business. Um, <laughs> Rachel,
1: hot button... I think uh, I shared the greedy peasant TikTok account with you all.
0: Yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh yes, yeah. Obses- Obsessed. Obsessed. Oh my god.
1: I mean, he dresses like a peasant, or what he would think a peasant might look like. <laughs> although it doesn't look like a peasant. I don't know what yeah. he's dressed as. Actually, he just looks like he's someone from another time. And then he'll read <laughs> out of books about the you know the his the history of tassels. Yeah, uh, that was the one you it was hilarious. And all sorts of, like, someone told me they think he has a partnership with the Cloisters now or something. This, this TikTok really? account is just the so funniest happy. thing I've ever
0: seen. That makes me so happy.
2: That's, that's what TikTok that's,
0: is good at. It's just good at weird. <laughs>
1: you know, the you highest mean, form just, of spawn con. Yeah. <laughs> but the amount of work some of these folks, including him, have put into their oh, personas it's a job. on TikTok. Yeah, it's incredible. Well, when you get paid. That's a good one. It works. Right, exactly. We'll Christina,
0: what's your hot button? What's pushing your button? You know, okay, so I, this is so not pop culture, but I guess because we've been thinking about all these big, deep issues and, you know, Shein and global things, I started thinking about, you know, where am I feeling really optimistic in fashion these days? And I was having a conversation with a woman that I've known um like largely through Twitter, but also I've interviewed her f- a few times and corresponded for a number of years. Her name is Kristen Frenarakis. She is a former um, financial executive, came out of Wall Street, and she sees... Uh, everything she does through the eyes of a Wall Street person, but she started a fashion company and she lives in the Carolinas, but she manufactures in Los Angeles and designs in, in Los Angeles. Um, she chose specifically not to take her brand, which she calls Senza Tempo. Um, she take, you know, she will not produce overseas. She looked Mm -hmm. for people that could make. And her attitude toward fashion, it comes, you know, it's informed by her background on Wall Street. So she's making a lot of clothes that were much like what she wanted when she was working in an office um, and working around dudes and designing for this. And, you know, whether or not she's a brand for most people, what she's doing is very particular to wanting to stay small. She's not trying to become the next Nike um, she's really being careful. She manufactures mm. in very small quantities. She knows a lot of her clients. And I just thought there are, she's by no means the only brand out there doing this, but I just, I just want to give a shout out to the brands like Senza Tempo that are, not, that are thinking small. Small is beautiful, and, um, and you can do great work for clients and, and make a living without putting out a shingle and trying to go public um, or or bring in private equity, and sell your soul. So that's mm. my my that's my my mm. hot button this week is just, let's give more focus to people who want to stay small. That's beautiful. That's all for the show, folks. Please support us by following us on Twitter. We're at Hot Buttons Pod, or send a link to friends or colleagues and go to Apple and Spotify and give us a rating. We really appreciate your support. If you want to email us with story ideas, please do. Send a note to hotbuttons at postscriptaudio.com. Hot Buttons is hosted by me, Christina Binkley, Shilla Kim Parker, and Rachel Kibbe. The show is produced by PostScript Media. Our senior editor is Anne Bailey. Our engineers are Greg Vilfrank and Sean Marquand. Cecily Meza-Martinez is our managing producer. Stephen Lacey, Scott Clavenna, and Rachel Kibby are our executive producers. Postscript Media makes podcasts at the intersection of climate with culture, politics, business, and tech. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude is a venture capital firm focused on climate solutions across energy, food, agriculture, transportation, logistics, and advanced materials. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch up with you next week. You guys, I don't need another TV show to watch. No, 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 no. Christina,
2: I, I'm i not joking. I was watching the episodes thinking, I cannot believe I made Christina watch And I'm so glad you didn't watch it. I'm like relieved. I felt
1: embarrassed. Oh, really? To yeah. Think, I was yeah, embarrassed. Okay. Don't tell watch me. It. I, this is like, uh, yeah, spoiler alert. I do love I it. Want... I'm not saying okay. I don't love it. We'll talk about it. I was
2: embarrassed <laughs> that I like, made you watch it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>